This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth Energy and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we talk about people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang, and today we have two segments on our show. The second is a short piece about salmon fishing in Alaska. But first, we have a conversation with urban farmer Will Allen. Allen is the founder and CEO of Growing Power, an organization devoted to urban agriculture projects. Since its inception in 1993, Growing Power has been at the forefront of the sustainable food movement. Among other experiments, they're currently pioneering vertical farming techniques in which crops are grown in multi-tiered structures. Will Allen himself grew up farming. His parents were sharecroppers. As a kid, he was also a talented athlete. He earned a basketball scholarship to the University of Miami, where he was the first African-American to play for the school. He was later drafted into the NBA, and his basketball career eventually took him to Belgium. It was there that he rediscovered his love for growing food. For the last several decades, Will Allen has traveled around the world giving talks about food security, urban agriculture, and food justice. In 2008, he was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's one of only two farmers to ever receive this honor. Our producer Mike Osborne sat down with Allen a few weeks ago. So I want to start off, this is a bit of a long question, so so bear with me. I want to start off by talking a little bit about your worldview and your sort of orientation as it pertains to the food movement. There's a lot of reasons people get plugged into this. There's uh, environmental reasons, there's health and, you know, animal welfare or community building. And, and underneath a lot of those different motivations, there's also a philosophy. It might be rejection of the modern industrial system or an environmental ethic, or maybe Maybe it's about food security. There's all kinds of reasons people plug into food. And, you know, these aren't mutually exclusive, but I would like to hear of all the reasons to care about food, where do you place the emphasis? Well, there, like you said, there's so many different reasons to uh, get involved with the food system, whether it's health, the environment, food access, food justice, you can just name many, many things. I've been farming for over 50 years. Uh, We're entering our 24th year of actually doing urban agriculture. 
I travel, I'm uh, fortunate to be able to travel to uh, pretty much all cities in America over the last 24 years, and uh, there are a lot of commonalities, and the one thing that uh, keeps popping up is the high unemployment in many of these low-income communities, communities that are impoverished, communities that corporate companies don't necessarily look at as going in and setting up a business. So I look at this from a sociological situation as well in terms of being able to uh, use urban agriculture as a stimulus to grow jobs. So I think urban agriculture should be looked at today as an industry. It's gone from uh, a movement to a revolution, and that's why I named my book The Good Food Revolution, to now um, I believe it can be that industry that can create thousands of jobs and put people to work and help decrease poverty. If we can use the food system and really be able to quantify how many workers do we need uh, if we're going to take a vacant lot, in many of these cities like Milwaukee, we have over 5,000 vacant lots. So if we put a farm on, say, uh, 1,000 of those 5,000, how many jobs can that create? So we have to really quantify that to be able to sell it to the politicos, whether it's on the state level or local level, uh, to be able to put some money into uh, the training of these these workers, because we need workers to build infrastructure, things like greenhouses and hoop houses, and to be able to train them on how to grow inside a city. I want to circle back to all these points in just a little while. But before we do that, I really would like to talk a little bit about your life story, because you strike me as a man who's found his calling in life. And I kind of like to begin at the beginning. You know, I, I know you're the son of sharecroppers. You grew up on a farm. And I heard you say in an interview, I think it was on Stephen Colbert, about uh, how you had to you know, finish the work before you could go out and play basketball. And uh, <laughs> just to dive in a little deeper, what was it like to grow up on the farm? I mean, what, what are your memories of, of growing up as a kid? Yeah, I think it all starts out when you're very young and you're on the farm working because that was a requirement of my father, who was a sharecropper, to move from South Carolina in the, in the 30s, and my mother as well, that we had to uh, work on the farm. Uh, he wanted us to learn about where our food come from and came from and um, for practical reasons to grow most of the food that we consumed. So as I got into high school and really even uh, middle school, for me to go out and play ball, which I really liked playing baseball at first, and then I picked up basketball at 13, I had to do my farm work before and um, had to get home uh, sometimes after practice when I was in high school. And me being a high school All-American from my sophomore year till I graduated, uh, I still had to do this work. You know, I couldn't necessarily go out and hang out with the with our, my peers and so forth. I had to go home and chop wood because we had wood stoves. So as I uh, graduated high school, I said, never again will I do this work. I wanted to go to college. I had over 100 scholarship offers. I wanted to get an education and play basketball and that was going to be my new life. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want to I want to talk about that. I have one more question about your upbringing. I mean, you mentioned that that your father sent sent a message or had a message around the dinner table. I assume about about the importance of growing your own food. I mean, was that was that actually a topic of conversation? Was that uh, a signal you you received from your family early on? Yeah, I mean, he used to tell stories. You know, it was mostly him communicating to us. 
because he was that kind of a person <laughs> uh, from the old school about his life and what he had to do and the fact that he couldn't go to school because he was one of the oldest ones of a family of uh, 13. So he had to go to work. He never uh, learned how to read or write, uh, but was a very smart man. But uh, he wanted to let us know about his life and what he went through and how tough it was and the fact that he learned these hands-on things. He could pretty much do anything from... I uh, worked as a construction laborer after he came from the south. And, you know, he dropped his plow in, uh, in the field, and uh, as a sharecropper, he wasn't making any money or he's getting cheated out of money or whatever, and uh, headed to D.C. where uh, some of his uh, family had moved. And unlike many African-American males at that time in the 30s, uh, they wanted to get completely away from, from agriculture. For some reason, he wanted us to uh, learn about our food. And so that, as I look at it today, it was a tremendous gift that uh, he gave us. Well, okay, so you're uh, maybe not a rebellious youth, but you did want to get away. You had basketball as your vehicle to a bigger and better life. Your career did eventually take you to Belgium, of all places. And, and from my reading of your story, that was really a kind of transformative moment. I was going to, you know, can I can I ask you about that? What happened sure. in Belgium? Yeah, um, that's where um, I actually came back to agriculture or farming. Uh, happened in Belgium. Some of my Belgian teammates, their families had farms. So one day I was invited out to help them. They needed some help in planting some potatoes and they did it kind of the old fashioned way. They didn't have uh, tractors and so forth. They had to spade up the land and it was very rich land like ours when we were farming. And uh, as soon as I got out there and started working and touching the soil, all of a sudden I had this uh, inspiration, you know, where this passion, this hidden passion that I had came out and I wanted to grow food again. So um, I asked a team that I, I was living in uh, a town called Lier, uh, which is um, pretty close to Antwerp in Belgium. And uh, I asked them to move me out of this small town out into the countryside. And uh, I got 25 chickens and I had some land and I got some seed and I started growing food the way we did back in the day. You know, here I was uh, back into something that I said I would never do again. As I look at my history and so forth, that was a transformative moment. So the passion kept growing as I kept growing food for several years. And during the Thanksgiving and Christmas, the other American players that played on other teams, we knew each other from playing against each other in such a small country. Uh, everybody would come to our house because we were known as the people that had lots of food because we grew it. And I would go up to the Shape Military Base. There was a friend who was in the, in the Army, and I would, uh, he would go into the PX and buy a couple of turkeys and some hams. And all the American players and their girlfriends and so forth would come to our house. Uh, I was married with three children. And we would fix food for Thanksgiving and Christmas because we had to stay over there to play during that time. And um, here I was back doing the same things that my parents did. Uh, we were known, our house was known as a place that you could always go to and get a meal because we had an abundance of, of food. We didn't have a lot of spending money, but we had lots and lots of food, which is a very powerful thing to have. And here I was doing what my parents did uh, as, as we grew up, where people would just show up at our house. And here I was feeding the other American players and other people 
in the Belgian community would come over as well. So, And then I also realized that this food is such a powerful thing in terms of building relationships with people. What better way than sitting around a table eating some really good food? It breaks down so many barriers and so forth. So I've used a lot of those things in my work with youth and community in terms of uh, being able to grow good food and bring people around a table to really discuss issues and even bringing uh, gang members together where they all of a sudden start eating some good food and they forget about all their differences and they start or at least talking to each other. So then you do come back to the United States, and sounds like you were in corporate America for about 15 years, first with KFC as a district sales manager, and then Procter & Gamble? Yes, uh, I came back, and I had a burning desire to farm on a much larger scale, and my wife's family had some land that wasn't being used, so I started uh, growing there, and I kept increasing the production the acreage, and I got up to 100 acres, and I was marketing food in into uh, the city of Milwaukee. At the same time, I had the off-farm job um, in corporate America. And in 1993, uh, as Procter & Gamble was going through restructures and so forth, I kind of saw the, I never looked at that job as being a career that I was going to stay in very long, but I had to put my kids through school and so forth. So I needed a, <laughs> I needed a, a job besides farming. and uh, But going through restructures and they were laying people off, salespeople off and so forth. So I decided to leave. I was able to buy the last remaining farm in the city of Milwaukee. And that's really when things started to change and my life started to change. The the burning desire to own a farm is sort of incredible. I mean, we all have our dreams. But, but at this point, though, there's nothing that even resembles a food movement underway in, in America, right? I mean, it was were people talking about organic or local or any of the things right. we're talking about now? Just uh, a little bit. There were farmers. Uh, Wisconsin is a noted farming state and growing a lot of grass and so forth for the dairy uh, cattle and so forth and the largest cheese producer in the country. So, you know, it was kind of a natural place to be because um, people were interested in farming, but they were used to larger scale type farming and urban agriculture was something that um, only maybe farmers and a few folks from universities that wanted to study food systems at that time, when you think back 24 years, would come to the table. So um, that's kind of where it started, and then more and more people got interested the vacant lots, and uh, mainly because we had started growing on those vacant lots and proving that it could be done because there were a lot of naysayers, a lot of people, especially amongst the African-American community at that time, that said, why are you doing the slaves' work? When I'd meet up with friends, they said, why are you doing the slaves' work? Uh, we'll never do this work, you know, we, we, <laughs> we're just not going to do it. And then when um, President Obama got elected and the First Lady got involved in terms of putting in the uh, small 1,200-foot uh, garden at first on the White House lawn, uh, it's estimated that uh, some uh, 10 million people started uh, growing food in their backyards and side yards and so forth because they looked at the first family as being healthy and they talked about good food and eating organic food and so forth and brought their own chef to uh, the White House and so forth. So it motivated a lot of people of color to uh, start growing food again. So that helped us along with kind of quantifying or proving that you could 
make a business out of it. You could grow food in the city. You could grow food on asphalt and concrete, you know, in communities that were in distress. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what has happened uh, along this continuum where we have thousands of people now engaged in urban agriculture. And then we ran into the recession where people didn't have jobs, so they were kind of drawn to urban agriculture as a way of uh, being able to uh, uh, get some capital into their into their families and so forth. So a lot of things were happening uh, as usual with a with a movement that turned into like a revolution. Now everybody, or most people, over ninety percent would rather eat locally grown food, sustainable sustainable food than food that shipped from, um, you know, a couple thousand miles away. So, um, like we said earlier, there's so many different things that have fueled the food system, but at the same time, there are tremendous challenges because it's much easier to go and get a 20-acre piece of land in a rural community and do row crops and grow food than it is in the city because you have to make so many changes and you're dealing with contaminated soil and you're dealing with a lot of issues uh, with community. You're dealing with uh, policy issues, so you have to get policies changed at Every city has different policies. Every state has different policies in terms of agriculture, especially around urban agriculture. So we had to actually do some modeling in terms of having this this farm that thousands of people could come to, come to from all over the country to look at and get inspired. And a lot of politicos have visited over years from the ag secretary to uh, the first lady to many uh, senators and so forth have visited our farm. So it's really about having a concrete model that they can see. Yeah. That they can come in. If people can come in and see aquaponics, see fish growing, see plants growing, see intensive production with mushrooms, have an integrated sustainable farm operation, um, they're much likely to jump on board than if you just go and to City Hall and start talking about your vision. You almost have to show them your vision in a very concrete way. I mean, you know, in in your previous answer, I think you point to a number of different challenges. There is a little bit of the the vision. What is the what do the funding organizations see? What are the local policies? Uh, what are the state policies? I guess I've heard you say in a different interview that, you know, of everything you've done in your professional career, this is the hardest. What, what is the hardest thing about what you're doing right now? I mean, is it is it sort of navigating some of the money and policy questions or is it, you know, the hard work of getting your hands dirty in the soil? Well, there are a lot of uh, challenges. And if you had to rank them, I would say uh, the hardest challenge that the work is extremely physical, and we've kind of bred a society today of uh, trying to find jobs that are not so physical and hands-on, and it's a profession that you have to have tremendous passion. You have to be totally passionate about uh, wanting to uh, be a sustainable farmer, so it's not like we're going to throw out a lot of chems on the ground and to kill all the weeds and uh, kill all the insects and stuff. It's really about uh, how to grow within the environment, the natural environment that you have, and how how do you learn how to do this and um, engage enough people so it becomes a profitable thing that you have some workers. And how do you um, make sure your workers um, have a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, how do we create these living wage jobs for them and not pay minimum wage for really hard work? 
Right. Because it's much harder work uh, than going and working at a McDonald's or uh, other fast food places or almost anywhere. And how do you um, recover from your losses? Because if you plant uh, 20 crops, not all 20 crops are going to make it. So how do you deal with losses? And I think one of the things that helped me personally was the fact that being in sports, you have to learn how to recover from from a defeat and learn from your mistakes and uh, and that's what farming is like every day because there's always something and sometimes it's not fruitful. I mean, you know, you have years where you don't make very much money, so you have to have a lifestyle that can support uh, this moving piece of economics that. You know, you have to wait for maybe a year where you're going to make up for some of your losses, you know. And funders don't necessarily understand that because they they want to see you cash flow. Everybody talks about, well, when are you going to cash flow this thing? So how do you cash flow? My question is, how do you cash flow the startup of an urban farm uh, in one year? You just don't. So if people are looking for a quick quick return on their investment, there is no quick return. It's going to take some time because you have to train people. You have to build infrastructure in city, inside these communities that's much different than going out in a rural community and just renting a piece of land for a couple hundred dollars an acre. Some of what we've been talking about is, uh, you know, the virtue of the work and, and that there's value in the in farming and growing your own food that isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily translate into dollars. But at the end of the day, money still matters. Dollars still matter. Right. And uh, I, I would imagine you've had to really think creatively about demonstrating value metrics, demonstrating important data points for for funders or for, you know, city managers or whoever it is. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, how do you assess success of, of a project? Well, I think, um, like I said, one of the things is uh, putting people to work. It's We're not a corporate company. We're a nonprofit. So uh, the goal maybe isn't to, uh, we'd like to be sustainable and be able to um, pay our bills and so forth. But um, the bottom line is there's some uh, benefits that necessarily don't uh, show up on a spreadsheet in terms of the health of the community to be able to quantify the change in the community. And I've seen that happen in some communities uh, with other groups that have engaged in the kind of agriculture that have taken a small slice of the community and actually changed that community by having uh, a food system that brings people together, for example, to get to know their neighbors because people seem to be very scared of each other. But when you uh, do urban agriculture, people have a meeting space on those um, community gardens or a community farm that they can get to know each other. So, um, you know, we have to be able to communicate that to funders as well as folks that are at City Hall because whenever there's a murder, the first thing they do is say, well, we need to put more police on the street. Uh, it's no really long-term kind of solution. And my my answer to that is that we need to, to reduce crime. You'll never be able to reduce crime unless you put people to work. People need jobs to be able to uh, pay their bills and, and end the cycle of poverty that we have in these communities because these communities are impoverished. And, and many people don't have hope, so we have to come up with something that can give them some hope. You know, and it's not something that happens overnight. So you have to have patience and some it's an investment that you have to make. But again, we're a society that wants instant change. 
just doesn't it's just not realistic so yeah no and then and, and there's you know, as we said before, always some element of risk. Well, so let me ask you a question about vertical farming, um, because I know this is an area where there's been a lot of excitement, and my read on growing power is that, that you guys have really been on the forefront of uh, trying to pioneer some new technologies and, um, and, and, and sort of really do some important experiments around this. Can you talk a little bit about vertical agriculture, what it could mean, why it's important, and what some of the challenges are? Well, I think it's going to be absolutely necessary in the future because when you look at cities like New York and Boston and Vancouver and Tokyo and many other cities that don't have a large horizontal land mass like Detroit or Milwaukee or Chicago uh, that has um, some 80,000 vacant lots, 33 square miles of vacant land, and some of that will be used for agri- can be used for agriculture. Um, we're going to have to go up uh, with more people moving into cities, over 50% of our population worldwide live in cities now or close to cities and over 75 percent in the next 40 years of that 3.1 billion more people that are going to be on the planet are going to be in cities so how do we feed all of these folks we definitely can't transport food to those places that hasn't worked it won't work so um, urban agriculture uh, growing close to where people live uh, getting rid of the uh, travel dollars of transporting food by growing in the cities, and the only way to go is up. So if you can imagine, like Desmond um, Disponier from uh, Colombia, he's the one that uh, came up with this kind of idea of 50-story buildings and 100-story buildings that could grow, feed 100,000 people or whatever. But nobody's ever done it. So our thing was to is to build a five-story vertical farm in the community and really quantify how to grow inside greenhouses stacked on top of each other in a multi-use kind of facility. I guess the last question, is there anything that uh, we haven't touched upon that you were hoping hoping we might or anything else you'd like to say about uh, sort of your life journey and, and you know, kind of reflecting back on, on everything that's happened? Yeah, I mean, it's been... Um, um, it's been fun for me. I shouldn't say fun, but it's been a challenge, but it's it's very rewarding for me to do this work. I feel um, very blessed to be able to have the opportunity and the health to be able to do the work that I've done for all of these years. It looks that way. You I mean, know? you look like you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> I'm seriously. I mean, I, the, 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 you're, obviously, you strike a commanding presence. And, uh, and, and as I've said over and over in this interview, uh, you strike me as a man who's found his calling. And, and that you, you seem to have a tremendous amount of gratitude for that. And that that's an important lesson for everyone as we you know, rethink our food system. Well, one of the things about growing food, um, it'll keep you humble. I mean... The day that you say, I've got it, I know how to do this, uh, is a day that, uh, you know, it's something you should never say because it's a it's a journey of learning. You know, I have a 80-year-old farmer, and I call every year and see how he's doing, and, and I say, what are you going to do this year, uh, you know, on your farm or whatever, you know, and he's still farming, and he says, well, you know, I'm just beginning to learn how to farm, and he's been farming for, you know, 70, almost 70 years. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a profession, it's an art form that you continue to learn. You learn something new every day. You're attacked by a lot of challenges. 
So um, I think staying humble is one of the things that is really important for people to do and for us to be able to grow farmers. Absolutely. Well, Alan, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time and best of luck with everything you're working on. Thank you very much. Thanks to producer Mike Osborne for that interview. If you're interested in learning more about or contributing to Growing Power, visit their website, growingpower.org. They also offer a variety of training opportunities. All right, we have one more short segment for you today, brought to us by Reed Levinson. Reed traveled to Alaska a few months ago to research and report on salmon fishing and how international politics may threaten the future of this industry. 300 years ago, America was full of fish. Every June, millions of salmon would return from the ocean, swimming and splashing their way upstream in rivers across the continent to mate and lay eggs. But by the 1800s, almost every species of salmon that lived in North America had disappeared, their breeding grounds destroyed by dams and deforestation. Today, Alaska is the last place on Earth where wild salmon are thriving. When you look at a watershed from the air, like the Taku, it looks like the arteries of the heart. It's deep, deep green on all sides, glaciers hanging in the valleys. Heather Hardcastle is co-owner of Taku River Reds, a sustainable fishery a couple miles south of downtown Juneau. Started fishing officially when I was um, eight, but you know, from age two I was on my parents' fishing boats. Two years ago, a dam at the Mount Pauly Mine in British Columbia burst, filling nearby lakes and rivers with billions of gallons of waste. For Canada, it was one of the worst environmental disasters in history. Heather remembers it vividly. I had woken up really, really early in the middle of the night on August 4th for some reason and had checked my phone and I saw that a tailings dam had breached in central British Columbia. What it means for a tailings dam to break is that the mud wall holding back all the waste from years of mining at Mount Pauly ruptured, killing everything downriver and leaving behind an ecological wasteland. They can no longer harvest salmon from the Fraser. That, that kind of um, grief is too much, yeah. It's too much because our life is so dependent on salmon. It feels like we're in this race to fight for these watersheds. Heather is part of an organization called Salmon Beyond Borders that's fighting for international oversight of Canada's new mines. Not just a battle about salmon for salmon's sake. I mean, the fight here is for, you know, southeast Alaska for our livelihoods. Chris Zimmer is a local fisherman and conservation activist. He says the new mines are an international problem. The fish, in effect, have dual citizenship. Salmon are born in Canada in the shallow freshwaters where the rivers begin. In this case, in the very same spot these mines are being proposed. The fish cross the border as they swim downriver, out to sea. Salmon spend most of their life in the ocean, but they return to their birthplace to spawn at the tips of the rivers in next-door British Columbia. The entire river is important to the lifestyle of these fish, so it's not just uh, up to Alaska to keep them healthy. It's BC's responsibility as well. And if they fail, you know, we pay the price. The mines not only threaten the rivers, they threaten the next generation of salmon and all the generations to come. Salmon out there support everything in southeast Alaska, from the bugs to the bears to, to people here. You know, in southeast Alaska, there's not a massive diverse economy. We have state government in Juneau, 
We have tourism. We have commercial fishing. If you lose that fishing part of the economy, that's a tremendous part of the economy and culture. I spoke with Mike Erickson, who runs a small business processing fish in Juneau. This is Mike Erickson. We're at Alaska Glacier Seafoods here in Juneau, Alaska. Like many Alaskans, Mike isn't against mining. But these mines in British Columbia are acid-generating, open-pit mines on a scale never seen before. Long after the mines finish operating, they leave behind huge lakes of toxic sludge that need to be treated in perpetuity. Even the smallest mistake can ruin a salmon population. One penny's worth of copper in an Olympic-sized swimming pool is enough metal to destroy a salmon's sense of smell, the way they navigate home. Mike simply doesn't trust Canada's ability to regulate these mines. You can go up there and mine somewhere for 20, 30 years and turn around and walk away and just leave it as a disaster. What's going to happen to you? Probably nothing. And he's right. The company responsible for the Mount Polly disaster is operating one of the new mines at the head of a river that runs into Alaska, a river full of salmon. As the number of tailings dams has increased worldwide, so has the number of failures. The mines are essentially ticking time bombs. Mike says he understands why the Canadians want to keep building mines, but they need to acknowledge what's at stake. I'm pro-business, very much so. And a lot of times for, uh, for the people building it, it's like cheaper's better. And um, you know, I, I don't criticize that type of thinking, but when you're in a situation where you could have a devastating impact on a watershed such as Taku, that kind of thinking don't work. You've you got to make sure what you're doing is, is absolutely safe. And, I truly believe there are some mines, or potential mines, that should just be left alone. And what do the salmon think about all of this? They seem content, at least for now. Thanks to Reed Levinson for bringing us that story. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. We had production assistance this week by Isha Salian, our new intern. We're really excited to have her on the team. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson and Tom Hayden. Tom had a birthday last week. Happy birthday, Tom. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at Jen Anthropocene. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.